Hello, this is Graham Brown, Senior Vice President and Principal with NextGen Advisors. I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. I'm joined once again by my colleague, Dr. Betty Rabinowitz. Welcome, Betty. Good morning. Hey, Graham. Nice to be here. October is a unique month, one in which several advocacy and research organizations focus their efforts on building awareness and engagement with the public regarding diseases and conditions which have a large impact on our population. October is both National Breast Cancer Awareness Month and National Depression and Health Screening Month. There's been some interesting discussion also in the past week or so at the FDA Advisory Committee, which is looking to update guidance regarding booster shots for COVID-19 vaccinations using a mixed dosing approach. So in the theme of prevention, we want to address a few different topics on today's podcast. Betty, let's begin with COVID vaccinations. This potential approach of mixing doses from different vaccine manufacturers was foreshadowed last week when researchers presented findings uh, of a federally funded mix and match study that the National Institutes of Health undertook. Uh, And they presented uh, this information to an expert committee that advises the FDA. The study found that recipients of Johnson & Johnson's single dose shot who received a Moderna booster uh, experienced antibody levels rising 76-fold over a 15-day period. That's compared with only a four-fold increase if those individuals were served, received a third dose, or sorry, a extra dose of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So federal regulators met this week. Looks like they've authorized both Moderna and Johnson & Johnson to come out with booster shots. And soon this mix and matching approach is going to be available. So would be really interested to get your perspective on what do you think some of the practical benefits are, but then also potential clinical benefits for someone who's gotten one booster or sorry, one kind of original uh, round of vaccination and maybe a different vaccine for their booster. So uh, I think there's, there's a variety of benefits. One is that it'll make getting the shots easier. So if you if there's issues with supply or availability or the logistics of getting the shots, it opens now an opportunity to get any shot that's available as your uh, booster shot, uh, rather than having to adhere very narrowly to the one you got before. Specifically for the Johnson & Johnson recipients of the original shot, this assures higher levels of immunity, which is exactly what we were trying to achieve. Johnson & Johnson performed a bit less well originally, and this shows that with either Moderna, obviously, uh, and Pfizer, there's a significant boost in immune response to them. So I think it's terrific news, both from a logistic perspective, but also the clinical efficacy of these vaccines is enhanced by this mix and match approach. So kind of related to this, um, in the last couple of weeks, the federal government has determined that they're going to recognize these mixed dose vaccination regimens that have been undertaken in different countries. Not not everybody was able to secure the number of vaccines that the United States was and didn't have the supply to be able to ensure folks got two courses of Pfizer, two courses of Moderna, etc. And so the if the world health organization has already considered these vaccines to be effective in different countries the us government is now going to recognize 
um, those uh, those individuals that might have a mixed dose is being fully vaccinated. So I'm personally glad to hear this news uh, because it means that my Canadian family members will now be considered fully vaccinated because some of them received an initial AstraZeneca dose and then got either a Moderna or a Pfizer as their second dose. I guess the, the question here, though, is um, does this to you seem like a rational step at this point to open up our borders and open up our travel industry in recognition of this this kind of protection from different vaccinations? I think it does. Uh, obviously, there's now data and evidence that these regimens have proven very effective. So, yes, I think these people should be considered fully uh, vaccinated. And the benefits of opening up uh, tourism, both from like for yourself on a personal level, but also an economic and basis for the country as a whole are, are absolutely essential. You know, we are approaching two years of this pandemic and the toll in terms of the world economy and uh, tourism as a specific industry has been staggering. So as soon as there's evidence and data to support the safety of it, we need to open uh, uh, borders. It's also, it's enough that some travel is occurring, which is occurring to mean that we live in a global village and that the uh, occurrence of uh, variants uh, is going to travel very quickly uh, across the world. And that really sealing borders at this stage of the pandemic is probably not a, uh, a practicable or, or um, advisable uh, approach. Yeah. Um, so when the time comes, if, if you get into the, uh, the group that's eligible for a booster vaccine, do you think you'll get one is part A of the question? And if so, would you consider a mixed dose? So yes and no. So I would absolutely consider getting a, a booster. I um, got Pfizer as my uh, first uh, two doses. Interestingly, for me, I like the notion of uh, biologic tidiness and not taking on the additional small risk of mixing and matching, which obviously it just introduces new chemical vehicles, it introduces another structure, introduces some more um, inert and not active ingredients on the one hand, and clearly uh, the Pfizer shots have shown to be very effective and the booster highly effective in, in increasing immunity. But that may have to do a little bit with my OCD as an internist. I like order. If someone asked if a patient or a relative or a loved one asked my advice, I would say that I think that the recommendation is a solid one. Certainly, if I had received Johnson & Johnson or, or in, in Europe, AstraZeneca or Canada AstraZeneca, I would absolutely mix and match. There is no question that Moderna first and then Pfizer have proven superiority over those vaccines and mixing and matching there is really important. It'd be really interesting to see how data continues to evolve and what we learn about the efficacy of combining doses and whether just as they've shown with one dose of Johnson & Johnson and a subsequent dose of a different vaccine, that there is a higher level of protection, whether that translates when we think mixing Pfizer and Moderna or all of these different variable combinations. Uh, it'd be great to see the data on that. And that will really, I think, help inform folks as to what the best course of action might be. 
Absolutely. And it might be that when we have this conversation a year from now, when we get our annual booster, which we know, obviously, I don't have any uh, information to support this. or So this is speculative what I'm saying. I think it's likely that this will be a reboosted uh, vaccine. It might be that by then we have enough information that overcomes my OCD uh, sense of order and that I would choose with the correct data to say, the, the, for example, does the immunity last longer? Does it decrease over time less when you've mixed and matched than when it's the same, uh, the same dose? So time will tell. My answer may change in a year for now. Uh, that would be, those would be my thoughts. Well, I know we'll uh, continue to follow that that topic. Let's shift to the other topics of October's month of focus. Depression and mental health screening. Uh, depression's been associated with shorter life expectancy for individuals, uh, particularly if they have other conditions. So individuals that have a complex chronic condition and also have depression are shown to have a much shorter uh, life expectancy. There's a lot of complications that go when those two conditions are experienced together. There's been some research that looks at quality adjusted life expectancy and would be interested to kind of get your your perspective on individuals that you've cared for that have depression and have other conditions and how you go about kind of understanding them and, and treating them because the complexity of their illness really is is different from somebody who's just showing up with, with a single condition. Absolutely. So the first thing is, is maybe to try and think about how that could be. How do we explain the fact that patients who have, for example, diabetes and hypertension fare worse if they have diabetes, hypertension, and depression? We know that to, to, this research uh, clearly identifies significant differences between those two types of patients. The one explanation is we know that depression impacts uh, the immune system quite powerfully. There is a whole body of work that shows immune changes in the context of uh, depression with less, probably less effective immune surveillance for cancers and malignancies, and certainly a predisposition to less immunity for infectious diseases, other immune-impacted uh, uh, conditions, which explain the excess mortality and morbidity. We also know the second reason is that patients with depression have less volition, have less energy, and tend to take less good care of themselves. They are, even in the absence of suicidality, there is just a, an apathy and a lack of uh, drive that creates delays in screening, Diabetic patients with depression tend to take less good care of themselves, less good control of, of their uh, sugar values, and their excess mortality is explained by complications of the core chronic degenerative conditions that they have compared with people who are uh, not depressed. What that means is that the importance of screening for depression in patients with chronic illness becomes absolutely paramount and that aggressive, proactive, continuous intervention for these patients, preferably in an integrated care setting, becomes critically important. And there's evidence, for example, that patients with cancer who, in whom 
uh, depression and emotional and spiritual needs are addressed fare better and postpone relapses of cancer compared with other patients. Uh, we know what needs to be done, but we need to, as clinicians, focus our efforts doubly on patients who share these conditions. Depression, misery, and chronic disease do not go uh, together uh, well, and it's our responsibility to identify uh, depression and other mental illnesses with effective screening and awareness and uh, asking the questions uh, when we see these patients and then offering proactive care plans that include very aggressive attention to uh, the behavioral health, emotional, psychiatric aspects of, of their uh, uh, illnesses. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a lay person considering this, it really strikes me as almost so obvious that somebody who is inhibited around taking care of themselves and the, the behaviors that go along with depression and how you can feel isolated and shut down and not motivated to go exercise, to eat healthily, to do all of those things that actually have so many other corollary benefits with regard to chronic disease can just put you in a situation where you spiral out of control. And so the, um, the importance of those, those joint approaches to recognizing the behavioral aspects of chronic disease management and whole person health, they're really you know, pivotal, it sounds like, to being able to address some of these needs when they get into these complex situations. Absolutely, and the, the kicker here is that some of these chronic conditions induce depression because of the limitations and the, the symptoms that they bring on, the trade-offs in terms of capabilities, you know, people lose functionality around uh, these conditions when they're uh, out of control or, or uh, severe. So one, one almost needs to assume that somebody with long-standing, severe, impactful, complication-laden diabetes, by definition, is going to be depressed. Whether or not they had a predisposition to depression uh, prior to that, there's enough to be very distressed about with these chronic conditions when they're severe and, and not well controlled. Let's, um, let's shift to our kind of third topic around today's podcast, Breast Cancer Screening Month. You know, the, there's been a huge amount of effort in terms of public awareness campaigns and October is well recognized with the Pink Ribbon campaign. You see a lot of involvement and focus on this. It's really been great to see how that's uh, gotten picked up over the last several years, a lot of awareness. Are there still barriers for individuals seeking breast cancer screening uh, today? And if so, wh what are those? So there are clearly patient-driven barriers and then system-driven barriers. The patient-driven barriers are uh, reluctance to get screened because of concerns, uh, worry about getting a bad result or worry about the test being uncomfortable. There are also, so those are some of the, the patient-driven uh, barriers that still very much exist. And then there are barriers of access. Uh, there are cost uh, barriers. Some states, New York State, where, where we live, has been very proactive in offering uh, financial support, time of work, has, done, has gone all out to support 
uh, allowing women of all socioeconomic uh, and uh, access capabilities to get mammograms and have mobile units and, and campaigns to encourage women to get uh, mammograms. This isn't the case in all states, obviously. So there are still uh, populations, underserved populations, populations of color, where access and cost are significant barriers uh, to getting uh, mammography uh, screening. And therefore, still, some of the outcomes are worse in those communities. So a diagnosis is made later and outcomes are poorer in those communities. So we have still across the country much work to be done uh, to close those gaps. Another barrier that is not always recognized is the fact that there isn't clear guidelines around mammography. If you look at the U.S. Task for Preventive Services Task Force recommendations, uh, they are recommending every other year mammograms between the age of 50 and 75. If you look at the cancer American Cancer Society recommendations, they recommend uh, biannual between 45 and 55 and 55 and on to do annual mammograms. So it is very confusing. Every time two major clinical uh, societies' voices differ in this way, we sow the seeds of confusion, which gives women excuses or just confuses them straight off uh, to say, which is it? I don't trust these recommendations. You can't even agree about them. And the controversy around mammograms is, is age, has followed my entire career, basically. The thing to do is to find your primary care physician, the one who you trust, the one who you create a, a long-term, trusted, caring relationship with, and to follow their recommendations, because you can assume that they have synthesized the differences between these sets of recommendations and will come up with a tailored approach for your specific, if you're Ashkenazi Jewish woman, the risk is higher because of genetic predisposition. It'll be probably following a closer and uh, more frequent uh, guideline recommendation if you are not at risk, etc. Those are conversations one should really recommend women have with their primary care physicians. And if you don't have a primary care physician, October is a great month to go and get one and find one in your uh, community. So I think that there is ways to get around this confusion, but it requires, it's a barrier, it requires a bit more uh, effort on the part of uh, patients to kind of figure out what the right thing to do is. But, but, you know, given those, both the differences in recommendations, but also the individual risk factors and all of those variables around family history, prior exposure to different things, lifestyle, etc., all of those, I imagine, are things that really put that conversation with your trusted primary care provider central to selecting the appropriate screening approach for, for women today. Absolutely. Well, there's a, a lot of complexity to these conditions and certainly the need for education and awareness around the risks associated with depression, mental health issues, breast cancer, etc. Certainly important enough that as a society, we designate a month each year to focus on these matters. Thank you very much, Dr. Betty Rabinowitz, for joining me today and sharing your insights and knowledge. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, consider subscribing. This is Graham Brown with NextGen Healthcare. Thanks and have a great day.